to the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. This is the show where we bring thought leaders from across the utility industry to share their expert insights on what's shaping the power sector today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe, coming to you from New York City. And joining me once again from Orlando, Florida, is Matt Chester, community manager and podcast producer. Matt, today we have with us one of the preeminent minds in the field of microgrids. How about you take a moment and define for our listeners, what exactly is a microgrid? Sure, Jason. Well, as, as far as I understand it, and I certainly don't know as much as our guest today, microgrid is essentially a, a smaller version of a grid. It's, it's able to island itself and take it off of operation from the main grid while also typically having that interconnection to the main grid. And it utilizes some form of uh, self-generation, some distributed generation as well. Is, is that right? I believe so. And certainly our next guest can course correct us uh, should we have gotten any of it wrong. So as you described, microgrids touch upon many of the hottest trends in the utility sector from reliability to distributed energy to clean energy and more. And the common factor that brings them together is the use of microgrids. Specifically, we're going to look at microgrids through the lens of the utility, where microgrids once viewed by utilities as a I don't know, a curiosity or something abstract to support government assets, or even a boondoggle for the rich, or at a minimum, a headache and even a distraction to utilities due to the right-of-way issues, interconnection issues, and required backup. Today, the mood has changed. Utilities have seen the light and recognized the value that microgrids bring to the utility and its customers. So with helping us understand the advances in the field of microgrids is our guest today, Peter Asmus, Research Director at Guidehouse. You have likely read the works of Peter Asmus, who brings over 35 years of industry experience in numerous trade journals and popular press publications. His writing covers topics like microgrids and virtual power plants. In fact, Peter has been among and around the Energy Central community dating back to 2003, long before even the advent of podcasts. So given that history and stature, it's well beyond time that we've had Peter join us in the virtual podcast booth. However, before we bring in Peter, let's give a quick thanks to Guidehouse for making today's episode possible. Guidehouse is a premier market research and advisory firm covering the global energy transformation, and we're always thrilled to have them as a partner providing expert insight to the energy central community. So with that, let's bring in our guest, Peter Asmus. Welcome to today's episode of the Energy Central's Power Perspectives podcast. Uh, nice to be here. Peter, take us on a history lesson of utilities and microgrids. While the early days back during the time of Thomas Edison started with microgrids, that didn't last. And the more modern utilities were not always keen on the prospect of microgrids. Why was this the case? Well, you're right. The whole electric industry here in the U.S. did start with microgrids. In fact, they started with direct current microgrids when electricity was a total competitive deregulated market. So it's a little bit ironic that in some ways some people might argue we're trying to go back to the days of Thomas Edison. But back then, uh, direct current couldn't really transfer electricity very far and so what you had is you had all of these wires and poles that looked very haphazard. You just had all of these sort of individual systems. And so ultimately, folks like Edison and uh, Samuel Unsell instead came up with the idea of the utility monopoly 
and also charging for electricity per kilowatt hour. But what that did is we went with alternating current. And so then the whole idea was economies of scale, larger power plants, bigger was better. And so now, though, what's happening is at Guidehouse, our forecasts show that beginning this year, more DERs, distributed energy resources, are coming online than centralized generation. And so what that means is we're going to need things like microgrids. You mentioned virtual power plants, DERMs. We're going to need these platforms to help orchestrate all that. But the reason why utilities were not enamored with microgrids, I started on microgrids about 11 years ago, was, of course, uh, you mentioned some of the issues. You know, is this going to impact their revenue? Is it really make sense to have redundant infrastructure? So there was a lot of issues. And then would these new systems wreak havoc with a larger grid? So there were a lot of concerns about that. So I think that's kind of where I started when I did my first report, talked to quite a few utilities. Most of them would say something along the lines of, like the whole grid was set up not to allow, you know, everyone to have islanding systems. But flash forward to today, and, and a lot of things have changed. And so I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate the history lesson. So bring us to today. You know, the relationship is far more positive, and utilities are installing and investing in microgrids in far greater numbers. So share with us what has changed. Well, I'd say one of the things that's changed is the DER resources that typically go into a microgrid. And it's not just solar and storage, although that's the hype today. And those are the two technologies where the costs have declined dramatically. Uh, you mentioned I've been around for a while. So I remember 30, 35 years ago, everyone said, hey, solar PV is great. It works great in space stations in outer space, but it's so expensive. You know, it doesn't make sense down here on Earth. Well, today, solar PV, a lot of people are predicting will end up being the cheapest source of power. So one is just pure economics. The other is as those DERs, as I mentioned, keep increasing in number, at the same time, power outages, I mean, are uh, declining in cost, the same time power outages keep going up. And it started more on the East Coast. I think it was Connecticut that passed the first microgrid law in 2011 after Superstorm Sandy. But since that time, uh, we just had a major power outage in Texas earlier this year. Here I am in California with wildfires are becoming, uh, unfortunately, annual events. We even have utilities shutting off the grid as an emergency response to these wildfires and high winds with the public safety power shutoff. So what's changed is the DERs have come down, power outages have gone up, and people are looking for solutions. They're looking essentially for greater reliability and resiliency. Let's talk for a moment about the utilities, their role and eagerness to get involved. So is there certain characteristics that certain utilities have that make them more inclined to participate? Like, is it private versus public? Are you seeing vertically integrated or not? Is it a geographic condition? Share with us, what is the insights telling you? Well, all of those things make a difference. And there's one little surprising fact I should point out. So when I said utilities 10 years ago, you know, weren't interested in microgrids, I should clarify, I'm talking about the lower 48 states here. So the number one state for microgrids in the U.S. is actually Alaska. And there, most of those microgrids are run by utilities, but they're complete remote systems because they don't really have a traditional grid. And actually, the utilities are very, uh, have deployed lots of microgrids on island nations, but those are a whole separate category. 
where there isn't traditional infrastructure. But if we talk about, let's say, the lower 48, there is a big difference. So private utilities, especially, you know, large investor-owned utilities have run into some regulatory issues. In some ways, one might argue that a public utility, you know, a small or medium-sized municipal utility, for example, is more self-governing. So it's a little bit easier to justify investing in a microgrid in a certain community or whatever. They are, as I said, more self-governing. So they have that flexibility. A vertically integrated utility, generally speaking, isn't going to be probably as interested in a microgrid compared to, let's say, a utility operating in a deregulated environment. And you know, I, I mentioned early monopolies. I mean, the truth of the matter is the utility monopoly has been chipped away considerably. We already have independent transmission system operators in some states. Utilities cannot own distributed energy. So, you know, there's there's a lot of differences. But I would say generally municipal utilities, which can be very progressive or very conservative in some ways, maybe it's a better fit. Not always. I'd say probably vertically integrated may have a, a little more difficulty justifying a microgrid. And then geographically, the hotspots have been more the coast, particularly the East Coast in California. One reason being higher retail rates, the other being more outages. On the East Coast, it's more hurricanes. On the West Coast, obviously, I mentioned wildfires. Also, the earthquake threat is another driver. Uh, and then you have the center of the country, which Still has microgrids, but there the costs are lower. The emphasis on renewables is more on large wind farms as opposed to behind a meter solar. And so all of those factors impact microgrid growth. But that being said, there are companies very active in the Southeast. In some ways, one might argue one of the least attractive markets. For example, Southern Company, a large investor-owned utility, vertically integrated, did purchase a microgrid company called Power Secure. And that power secure does a lot of microgrids for utilities. They tend to be fossil based, but that's one example. Another quick example in Texas is a company called Enchanted Rock, which builds its whole model around the market structure in Texas and basically provides resiliency for grocery stores, but then are called upon to help balance wind power because Texas has so much wind power. That's great. Uh, you know, I want to understand more of the trends, but also are any of the trends reflecting or leaning towards renewable generation to power microgrids? So share with us what you're seeing out there in the marketplace. Well, that is definitely a trend. So, you know, the traditional solution for resiliency has been diesel generators. If you go to military bases, you know, that's always been their first response. Hospitals are actually mandated by federal regulation to have diesel generators. But what's happening now is with climate change becoming more evident, I think folks, uh, the general public would even agree over the last few years with the extreme weather. I mean, we are having, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, <laughs> snowstorms. Uh, you know, I mean, we've always had snowstorms, but at different times of the year. And so the weather is just becoming more variable. We're having more outages. And so that's raising interest and means that you can't rely on those diesel generators that often. I mean, historically, well, we might use them once a year, maybe once every other year because there were so few outages. And what's also driving that is now the investment community. That's kind of my biggest surprise is the investment. The investors are saying to utilities and large corporations, including the big data center companies like Google, Facebook, et cetera, 
that they have to reduce climate risk. They can't just keep their diesel generators and buy renewable offsets to offset that. They want to see less risk. And so that's what's going on. So a lot of those data centers, for example, are going with fuel cells as kind of a incremental step forward. Fuel cells can be part of a microgrid. And we're seeing much more emphasis on clean energy microgrids, particularly here in California, where actually the state government will not pay any money towards a fossil fuel generator installed in a microgrid. So that's you know one example. But of course, California does have carbon reduction mandates, has aggressive renewable goals. So that's part of the policy driver there. Can the generation get sold back into the ISO? Yeah, so that's the other big trend. Why utilities are less opposed to microgrids is I think what's happened is they realize even if they don't deploy a microgrid themselves, that microgrid can serve as a demand response resource. In fact, San Diego Gas and Electric asked the Miramar microgrid, it's a marine base, to island three times, I believe it was last year, when there was a shortage of power on the grid and just taking off, you know, a certain amount of megawatts enabled the utility to share those resources with other customers. Same thing once happened with another microgrid in the San Diego area called the University of California San Diego microgrid, where allegedly a swing of just three or four megawatts kept the whole grid up and running. And so that's, these are the kind of stories that then make utilities think, well, wow, those microgrids could provide value. They could be a demand response resource. And with FERC order 2222, basically enabling resources as small as 100 kilowatts, mixed aggregation to sell all the way up into wholesale markets, that's just going to accelerate this trend. And that's where I say the microgrid can become a virtual power plant. The moment that microgrid sells a service back to the utility, then I say it becomes a virtual power plant. Yeah, yeah. So there's some messaging here that we need to make to the public because my next question is really about perceptions. Still stuck on the fact that a utility may build microgrids that we passed on to the rate base. And that doesn't seem right. Or how do we change the perspectives that the rate base values such investments, even though they may never directly or even indirectly benefit from them? What do you say about that? Yeah, well, that's a key question where a lot of investor-owned utilities have actually had regulators reject proposals for rate basing. I know Baltimore Gas and Electric several years ago ran into that and a few other utilities have had a similar situation. And you're right, the whole regulatory system was based on this idea of equity, basically, you know, the same price of energy for everyone. Well, not for everyone, but tiers pricing and basically one size fits all kind of energy service. And so the microgrid in some ways totally goes in the opposite direction. We're saying you could have different levels of service. How much resiliency do you want? Do you want three days of resiliency, four hours, et cetera? So that is the challenge. Now, that being said, there have been utilities that have been quite successful. And probably surprisingly, one of the most successful has been Duke Energy, very large investor-owned utility as customers in multiple states. So you can imagine like if someone's going to build a microgrid in one state and the utility serves four states, you know, how could you justify that? Well, one reason they've been successful, and this is also the case with the Borrego Springs microgrid in San Diego, is that that cost of the microgrid was lower than a traditional transmission upgrade. So in that case, and that's not always the case, 
the, all the rate payers benefit because they are going to be charged less for providing that service, even though that service is a small cluster of customers. And so that's where utilities have had the most success in terms of the U.S. is sort of these non-wires alternatives. Now, Duke also has created some microgrids. They call them contingency microgrids. I believe there's one in Indiana where the assets actually serve the larger grid, sell into the ISO. But when there's an outage, it provides resiliency to a National Guard facility. So in that sense, you know, that microgrid, I think the rate basing component was just sort of the switching that enabled the islanding. And so that's another way is do you rate base the entire microgrid or do you just rate base a few components that you can argue benefit, you know, a broader array of customers? Because a lot of utilities can't own DERs anyways. And so I think that's going to be the interesting challenge is how can you develop hybrid sort of public-private partnerships, also depending on the structure of the utility, leveraging private industry or even community organizations or local governments and utilities. And we're just starting to go down that road. That's fascinating. It's great insight, Peter. I also want to bring all this to the topic of digitalization and artificial intelligence, a current area of focus for the energy central community. So how are digital and AI tools enhancing the capabilities of microgrids within the utility sector? Well, that's also one reason of those technology advances. So 10 years ago, people weren't talking about AI. Now you read about it all the time. And, you know, just like anything, it's probably overhyped a little bit as to what can be done. But that being said, it's essentially machine learning AI is that the system learns as it's uh, deployed and just the performance gets better all the time. And that's what's particularly important when you have a mixture of DERs, maybe a mixture of fossil, renewable, different kinds of batteries, even EVs. Another hot topic, electric vehicles being plugged into microgrids, because as we electrify, of course, if the grid keeps going down, that means you're not only impacting electricity service, you're impacting transportation services. So it's really about the controls. And that's where the other interesting thing has been a lot of advances in controls. A lot of the early microgrids, a lot of the larger established vendors just tried to use what they used on the big grid and just sort of said, well, we just shrink it down to the microgrid. Well, that works fine with kind of a a CHP, combined heat and power type microgrid, which is in some ways still like a centralized system for a microgrid. But if you're adding more solar, maybe you even have a couple kinds of batteries and maybe you have a diesel generator and a CHP system, it's just more sophisticated. And so Now there's a lot more software companies with AI saying it's more of a bottoms up, putting out the intelligence to the device level. And so they don't need a master telling them all what to do. They just react in real time. And then you kind of have a higher brain that does that longer term thinking. And that also fits into this idea of FERC order 222 as these microgrids need to interact with the larger grid, respond to market signals. That's where a lot of the advances are more on the virtual power plant side, just where if you have, for example, a VPP could have a thousand residential homes with storage solar EVs, that AI will learn the characteristics of all of those homes over time, will know which ones respond to certain signals, which one are better at providing frequency regulation versus some other service, and that the performance will just get better over time. And so ultimately, it's because of AI and machine learning where the idea that the more diversity you have, 
the more resilience you have. Well, 10 years ago, people would say, but that could, there's greater failure rate because what if all those devices can't talk to each other? That's what's changed is that the AI and the machine learning make all of that kind of promise actually reality. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it's a fascinating topic and it's going to continue to evolve, no doubt. So Peter, thanks for highlighting all this for us. Now it's time for a lightning round. If you've listened to any of our sessions in the past, we're going to throw a handful of questions at you, give the audience a bit more of an insight into who Peter Asmus is. So you'll answer each question with one word or phrase. Are you ready? <laughs> sure. Fire away. Okay. What would have been your second career choice if not the energy field? Well, believe it or not, rock musician. <laughs> Who tends to leave the lights on the most in your household? Definitely my wife. If it could be anyone, real or fictional, who would you invite to your dinner party? How about Nikolai Tesla? What game show would you choose to be on? Well, I have to admit I'm a Green Bay Packer fan, so I'm going to say Jeopardy because Aaron Rodgers was on there recently. And what are you most passionate about? I would say the natural world. I live kind of, well, this is longer than one answer, but I kind of live here on the coast in Northern California above San Francisco. I live basically in a nature preserve. So I really enjoy that and kind of balances out this work we all do sitting in front of a computer. So I like to get out and get some fresh air. Very nice. Well played. All right. So as reward for your flawless performance, we'll give you the last word in today's episode. So if you could leave the utility leaders listening in on today's episode with a single reminder, suggestion, or piece of advice, what would it be? Well, I would say, you know, don't put your head in the sand and ignore the world that's changing around you. We see, you know, corporations in the past that have done this. We've seen what's happened with telecom and how deregulation reshaped things and those that anticipated the change we're eventually able to, to profit from it. So I think that's what utilities have to start thinking outside the box, developing fresh relationships and view this growth in DER and microgrids, virtual power plants, DERMs as an opportunity, not as a defensive sort of posture, but a, a way to move forward and to deliver better value to their customers. Wonderful. Peter, we want to thank you for your time today and for sharing some really insightful perspectives with us. As microgrids continue to gain steam, we'll have to keep in touch and perhaps have you back to update us. So thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Glad to come back whenever you call upon me. You can always reach Peter through the Energy Central platform where he welcomes your questions and comments. And on behalf of the entire Energy Central team, thanks to everyone for listening today. Once again, I'm Jason Price. The most relevant conversations of the utility industry today are happening in the Energy Central community. So we look forward to you joining us and sharing your insight at energycentral.com. And we'll see you next time on the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. <music>